Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from episode 11, our discussion on some of the key trends of Nashville on the first part of 2023. The episode itself strayed from the original premise to become a fascinating look at the emerging tension between the rapid development of drug and diagnostics versus sociopolitical behavior that does not adequately address the underlying sources of metabolic disease. What emerged was a fascinating, complex session. Then from the vault, we have conversation 28.4 from season three, and we see Stephen Harrison, Jorn Schottenberg, Louise Campbell, and I discuss how the drug development landscape looked and felt a mere nine months ago. This conversation starts with Jorn Schottenberg, Louise Campbell, and me discussing what we consider the most important Nash-related events in the first part of 2023. Global Liver Institute Vice President for Liver Health Jeff McIntyre joins in shortly thereafter. Jorn starts the conversation sharing his enthusiasm about the incredible scientific advances discussed at NASHTAG in January and gaining momentum since. Responding to a choose A or B style question from me, he suggests that the greater energy and enthusiasm is around the drugs, but that advances in non-invasive testing are close second. To Louise Campbell, the recent AASLD guidance is a source for enthusiasm, particularly in its focus on clarifying the meaning and value of CAP scores. She also anticipates the final nice decision on using FibroScan in primary care settings as another key moment. I suggest that a variety of factors are converging in a way that might shift the frontline question from, should I test this patient, to how should I test this patient, which would be a huge step forward in guideline compliance. I liken this topic to some of what we're discussed on our most recent episode of the Rising Tide podcast, which you can find at surfingnash.com. As the conversation ends, I suggest that payers may be looking to engage Nash more constructively, or at least with a more open mind, than some other recent diseases. One key point emerging from this episode is that the effects of the fatty liver pandemic will be with us far after we have begun to implement new drug and lifestyle interventions and better diagnostic testing. This is a huge issue, with dramatic, far-reaching implications for health systems around the world. So just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. So what the four of us will do today, this is kind of an improv episode given my total brain fog last week, is we're just going to take some what we consider highlights of the first quarter of this year and then what we see as possible highlights for the second quarter of this year from the four locations that each of us sit in. That should, I think, be an interesting episode because, gosh, we all know it's been a fascinating first three and will be a fascinating next three months. Why don't we just dive in? Jorn, let me ask you, too, since I know you're going to have to jump off in a couple of minutes. Let's look back over the net last, your last three months and see if we can pick one major theme you want to expand on for a few minutes before you jump. Jaren Schattenberg. Yeah, I, I think the year started out and we covered this with Nashtag that laid nicely what we can expect of this year in terms of diagnostic and therapeutic developments. That was a great meeting in Utah and I think it held up to today. Shortly after Nashtag, there's a lot of activities around getting easel abstracts ready to be submitted. You know, that meeting in June in Vienna and I mentioned my registration um, at the beginning is really going to be a highlight in, in terms of both biomarkers and drug development. I, I think I saw post uh, over 2,500 abstract were received. Whoa. I reviewed uh, around 160 in the categories of NAFLD diagnostics. And I can tell you there was some heavy stuff in there. We're seeing predictive biomarkers in terms of within clinical trials. We're going to see prognostic biomarkers based on huge registries and, and also, of course, a lot of diagnostic biomarkers. So I think the whole field is just taking off based on the last year's energy and, and, and studies are being set up. And to say I'm really excited about uh, attending this year. Fantastic. If 
you had to hazard a guess, would you say that there'll be more excitement about drugs or more about diagnostics coming out of the meeting? Or is it just impossible to say at this point in time? No, I think the drugs are in the end beating the diagnostics and the late breaking sessions and probably the general sessions, the presidential plenaries. I think that's going to be occupied by interventions, which is phase two, phase three trials, because their scientific rigorousness is usually higher. There have been only a few well-conducted prospective trials in qualifying biomarkers, and Litmus has produced some of those, Nimble, obviously, too, but there's a lot more drug trials than, and then really prospective diagnostic tools. A lot of the diagnostic cohorts are retrospective, and then it's always difficult to you know link this to outcome. I think for diagnostic accuracy, that's okay, but truly an area of unmet need is the prospective studies here. And this is something we're actually thinking about with colleagues these days a lot, trying to set up prospective biomarker trials. And we had Mazen Noreddin on detailing us about Mela and IT, but there are other consortia trying to tackle that. The investments in that arena are normally not as big as in the drug development arena, but I think it's an important, you know, as we discussed, it's an important. So in the end, it's not either or. Drugs are leading the way a little bit, and I think diagnostics are trailing, but uh, it'll be a lot of excitement on both borders. Yeah, that sounds right. And then there's convergence, right? I uh, saw a press release last week from Turns where they announced a Type C meeting with the FDA in May expressly to take a look at organizing trials around non-invasive endpoints. I, I've not seen anybody else put out a press release on that subject, but I know there's a lot of activity in terms of people talking with FDA about how to either get co-parallel endpoints or, or, or find ways to start to move beyond or in conjunction with biopsy in terms of what are we learning and how can we start to actually get beyond that in a practical way. So I take your point. Absolutely. And I think as of yesterday, there's an article published in JHEP reports on the effects of Peckbill Furman on biomarkers in the histological response. I mean, this is one of those trials that we've discussed in the past. And you know, within that treatment frame, they detail, among other things, I think the SOMA scan assay in relation to um, liver histology, but also other biomarkers like Pro-C3 and, and CK18, MRI, PDFF. So this is a lot of the science we're seeing now. We're having trials, even if the primary endpoint was met, it supports the biomarker development in the context of those clinical trial populations. Yeah, I think you highlight what's been a generally exciting trend in the last six months, which is people sharing a lot more data. Or data, you know, I mean, we've done well with failed trials forever in terms of what we've been able to learn, but even, even more than we had in the past. Louise, your first quarter in a nutshell, what you think have been the exciting developments that you've been able to access? Louise Campbell. I think, as John says, this movement for different biomarkers moving forward. One of the highlights was the recent AASLD guidance. And for me, it was nailing cap or continue attenuation parameter from Fibroscan. It's one of the first releases that's actually stated to use it to what we're looking for. I think the high level of cap was 288. But when we're looking at enriched populations, we want to definitely find high liver fat. So that's why it's set that way. And I think that's interesting data because it's not, I've commented before with the conferences when I look at the posters, that it's very rarely used. We only ever look at the stiffness. But I think the strength of that document was it was reviewed, it was looked at, there were cutoffs used and to actually use it in, and include it in the liver health parameters of those patients because they may have normal softness and stiffness levels, but they don't have normal cap. That is a sign of an unhealthy liver. If you tie that in now with some of the stuff that was followed up in Arzold last year, which was the liver cirrhosis measurements and also the type 2 diabetics, I think there's a very good article in the Journal of Hepatology this month about the level of fibrosis and cirrhosis in those with type 2 diabetes. So for those listeners that are new to this, that to me is the highlight, is we are moving with endocrinology, cardiology and obesity medicine in 
in looking now for liver health and defining those patients with high cap steatosis with soft livers, but more importantly, looking for those 14% that had really advanced fibrosis, but the 6% in that type 2 diabetes study recently that had cirrhosis, because as we know, that's a significantly rising problem in those with type 2 diabetes. Obviously, apart from Madrigal's release and resnitarone, that for me, that movement forward, being able to include more populations to look for poor liver health with those non-invasive biomarkers, either blood-based or imaging, um, to monitor for the have been the highlights of the last three months but I think they're going to gain in momentum over the next three to 12, 12 months realistically for me as we start to use them in different ways. Okay I do have one question for you Ralph to all that. Naeem mentioned last week that he now has in his office a hepatoscope from Escopics. And so I'm starting to see more noise from Escopics and more noise from Sonic Insights around Velocor. And neither of those systems, I believe, has CAP score in it exactly because it's different te- different technology. Uh, I, you might be more familiar with me. You spend more time in that space. The hepatoscope does. Okay. I've certainly had two. And I like the technology. I like it. Velocor, Velocor does also now yeah. that I think of it. I've not seen the Velocor system. Uh, I've obviously looked at and spoken with the hepatoscope team. And I've had two. And in fact, I did fibre scans at the same time. And to be fair, they correlated fairly well, but I think also Naeem was thing to say it's a surrogate of a surrogate. So we know Fibroscan is a surrogate and it's biopsy proven. We know that the hepatoscope and Velocur, as far as I'm aware, aren't and they're not going to be tested against liver biopsy. So they are surrogates of surrogates. So I think that that's worth mentioning. But, but I was impressed. I liked the um, hepatoscope. I liked that it could just plug into a laptop, also that it was quite small and therefore more portable. And Fibre scans are very portable. I have one that travels tens of thousands of miles. So, <laughs> does it get frequent flyer miles or frequent driver no, miles? No, but I might have to register it for frequent flyer miles, given my trips to and from Australia. But it travels very well. It's the size of a small suitcase, so and it's very well protected, and it fits all of the dimensions to be able to get onto a plane for its lithium batteries and stuff. So, which I don't think the uh, hepatoscope system would have that problem. But uh, anything that gets more diagnostics into the real world to make ease of access for me as you know that's exactly what we're set to do and the more the merrier in that context yeah, i think it's going to be an exciting time in that market in general first of all as, as i've said on this podcast like throughout my career which is way too long to acknowledge that the first entrant the question is whether and the second entrant the question is which so up till now there hasn't been robust enough competition for fiber scan it leaves a classic ultrasound far behind but there hasn't really been classic competition so you ask what's the best way to do all this and i think that in of itself will increase testing, number one. Uh, number two is the guidelines and all the pressure on those, which I think is, t- to me, the most important thing I've touched in the last three months, oh, one of two, will create a situation where more doctors in more specialties at more levels will be focused on how do I test, what do I test with, and at what point do I test? I think that's right. I think some of the difficulties with that, obviously, a highlight for me has also been the potential approval, and we're close to the approval by the National Institute of Clinical Excellence for Fibroscan as a first in the world, I think, to be accessible by all primary care. If that comes to fruition, like any of these diagnostic devices being used in any setting, it's how do you do it in the best way? For me, it's used specialist services like ours that just come in and do it for you. You don't have to test. You don't have to ramp up. It can be done immediately. So therefore, it cuts those timelines. But there will be the issues for endocrinology, cardiology of exactly how do you do that? Do you get a liver person in? Do you get uh, do you upskill your own staff to then talk about the liver and fatty liver disease? I think 
it gives us numerous challenges, but they're exciting challenges to take on and they're not insurmountable. But often the fear of something new stops something new coming in. And my biggest thing would be that there are patients suffering from liver disease and terminal liver cancer that we could locate now that would not be terminal if we start to roll out these systems. So I don't mind what system suits individual clinics. What it would be to do is get the best advice, look at the different models that you can use because there are many now. We use different models for different people and different locations and I think that's the key. But it has to be about the client and the patient and it has to be about allaying their fears but also raising the importance of what they can do because as we've said in most liver diagnostics, if you find it in the real time with that person in the room, you can really make a change and that to me is the exciting part of all of these new biomarkers and anything that we can get in real time. And we will get to point of care liquid testing for some of this as well, I'm sure, as we develop. Technology moves at such a rapid pace, but medicine and the frameworks around that don't move anywhere as quickly. And I think that's one of the challenges. One's in the dinosaur era, one's in the 23rd century nearly already. How do we get them to work together and get it out? Which one do we say is where? Well, I think our structures, our frameworks and our pathways are still Jurassic. And some of the technologies that we're looking at, if you look at Rachel Zayas's work and some of the stuff on proteinomics and precision medicine that could be in is nearly 23rd century. It is so way out there. Yeah, although not quite ready for prime time. But actually, if we ever get Rachel back on, she's got news to announce, but I'm not going to do that for her. I'll let her do it the next time she shows up. In the business, right, we launched Rising Tide, which is actually a second podcast, which is now formally launched, which is targeted at frontline treaters. And really, the idea being, we've been saying this forever, that what the guidelines have in common, among other things, is a recognition that we need to be screening more broadly and that that screening really has to happen on the front line, that we can't send everybody with a fatty liver to a hepatologist to figure out what's going wrong, or the hepatologists will all go out of business because they'll be too busy, they won't get to eat, they won't get to sleep, they won't get to have lives. So we're starting to see increasing focus around that challenge. We're seeing people asking us in the context of rising tide and tsunami, but more rising tide, what can they do to be more effective in reaching out to those audiences? We're talking, you have to remember, um, I guess it was Mike, Michael Charlton posted a paper at Nashtag where he pointed out that we get 2% as many ICD-10 codes in the U.S. for Nash as we'd expect, and they all come out of primary care. 90% of them come out of primary care, which says, to, which says basically that the system's completely unequipped to handle any of this right now. So that'll be pressure number one. Pressure number two is people I talk to tell me that payers are starting to focus increasingly in the States, at least, on how to handle this. Now, their sense of urgency has to do around the fact that drugs are coming and that the launch of the direct antivirals was a policy and economic challenge, let's just say, for health payer plans because the prices were astronomical. And while the health economics made the prices defensible, nobody had the budgets to pay them. One of the things I'm fond of saying is you can't save people money they're not spending it. So if by spending $100,000 now, you can save $1.1 million over a 20-year period starting in year 11, no one has the $100,000 to spend to save the money. And, and I think that was a problem. So now, question becomes drug utilization, diet, all that good stuff. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send me an email at questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week to discuss the ICER draft guidance on pricing for Esmeteram or Betacolic Acid, an important issue and one where you're invited to join us through audience participation. Send a note to questions at surfingnash.com if you want to request an invitation for the live recording Monday, March 13th at 2 o'clock. Until then, stay safe. Surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.